Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. And that started our odyssey through the foster care system um, of nine different homes. Uh, At that point, for me, it was in three, three and a half years. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm a CASA volunteer, a court-appointed special advocate for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know it's a mouthful. In the same way a CASA works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi, I'm here with Venus Manuel. Thank you so much for getting on this podcast. Thank you for having me. I know it was a little bit of effort and um, I, I really do appreciate it. So, I think I've already told you this, but I want to remind you that I tracked you from an LA Times article from almost 20 years ago. And I was at the, at the time, I was thinking about making a documentary about youth in foster care that were aging out. And I found this article about you and I saved it. And I came across it a couple weeks ago, let's say, or maybe actually a couple months ago now. And then I looked for you and I looked for you and I looked for you and then I found you. (laughs) So, you know, even that is quite an amazing, um, an amazing thing that happened because I, even though I'm signed up for LinkedIn, I hardly ever check it. And I think I've only responded to somebody on LinkedIn maybe once over the last seven years, but for whatever reason, I opened it up and I seen it was you and I was like, I, I have to, I have to respond. I mean, how, how flattering is that? So thank you for reaching out to me. I'm so glad you responded. So um, I'm going to let our listeners learn about you by you talking about yourself. So why don't you just tell me a little bit about your background, about your upbringing, about how you were raised and, and what happened during your childhood? Uh, um, well, my childhood was tumultuous to say the least. Uh, I was born to two drug addicted parents and my father was a pimp. Um, my mother was his main girl, so he never pimped her out. Um, but she still had responsibilities, um, to help to take care of the other women who ran through our house. Um, he was also a drug dealer and my mother was a drug addict, uh, which led to her actually using while she was pregnant with me. Um, and there's, there's really quite incredible stories. Even in that, uh, she used to tell me that my father would tie her up and, um, give her a bump basically while she was pregnant, make her take it to control her. So, um, in utero, I was exposed. Um, my father was in and out of jail my entire life, but it was something that was natural to me because 
that's, that's what it was. Um, I knew the CEOs at the prisons and they knew me so much to where I'd come in on holidays and they'd have candy for me. Um, I was, (laughs) I was kind of like (laughs) their kid too. Wow. Um, Wow. um, and going to visit my daddy was, you know, every, every kid loves their mommy and daddy. And I didn't really know the difference. I didn't know that the family was dysfunctional at that point, um, to the extent that it really was. So, uh, long story short between my father being in and out of jail, my mother being a drug addict and still trying to be a functional mother. Um, I got left with a lot of babysitters, um, who are mainly male cousins who, um, exposed me and victimized me, uh, to a lot of sexual abuse. Um, I was also raped at 11 because my mom was so far into her addiction. I basically got to do whatever it was that I wanted to do. And so I was out in the middle of the night with teenagers and I was 11 years old and walking home drunk and I shouldn't have even been out that late. And I was, um, raped on the side of, I was pulled down through the side of a road, um, And, uh, then I really, really started to get angry and uh, I definitely showed in my behavior. And, uh, the next two years were very, were also very hard. My father, again, he was in and out. And my father, when he came home at this time, um, was very abusive. Uh, and almost, it was almost as if my mother, my mother challenged his ego. The fact that he was away from home and was not able to provide, um, challenged his ego looking at it now from hindsight. Um, and he wasn't able to produce the type of income that he did when I was younger. So I think that made him even more angry. Uh, there was a point that stands out to me as I'm telling you the story, um, where again, I was also angry. My mother had told me to do something and, um, I walked away and I said, you're being such a bitch under my breath. And, uh, she said nothing to me. My father came home and she told him and he beat me like I was a grown man. Um, my face was disfigured, swollen, um, black eyes, bloody lip, like the whole nine yards. Um, and then he went back to jail after that. (sighs) My mother fell even deeper into her addiction and, um, basically in the ninth grade, I came home and I was very angry. She had, she had been having men coming in and out of the house. Um, and a lot of inappropriate things were happening. She actually took me and my sister out of our rooms and made us sleep in the kitchen underneath the table behind a, um, like a credenza and moved people into our house, other drug addicts. So we slept on the floor in the kitchen under a table while she rented out our rooms and my father was in jail. I came home from school and I was angry. It was the the second week of school. And I was so angry because I had no clothes to wear. I was wearing my boyfriend's clothes because my mother stole my clothes and sold them for drugs. And, um, being an angry teenager, I mean, teenagers have their emotions as it is, but being an angry teenager, I, I voiced my opinion and I'm not saying the way that I did it was right. It was correct. You were a kid. I was a kid. Yeah. And what I was saying was correct. Doesn't mean that I was supposed to be disrespectful, but um, I, I think I say that also now because as a parent, I, I understand both sides. Um, but my mother beat me like she had never beat me before, and she'd beaten me before. 
at one point I thought she was going to kill me and I was able to get away from her and run down the street and she was so high and I ran track. She was so high. She caught me by my hair and pulled me down the street in front of all of our neighbors by my hair. And, um, I was screaming and she kept telling me, shut up, shut up, shut up. And she kicked me in my face, pulled me in the house, continued to beat me. There was already blood coming out of my face and I was on the floor and she kicked me in my face again. And I woke up the next day in a pool of my own blood. And that was almost the last straw. I just didn't come home anymore. I stayed at my friend's house. I came home to check on my little sister, um, but then I would leave again. Right. So you had a little sister at home at the same time. Yes. I had a little sister at the same time. And then I actually had a foster brother who um, was growing up in group homes. And we became very, very good friends in junior high, so much so that he would leave his group home and come hang out at our house. Um, And my mom, even being the drug addict that she was, became his mom. Uh, She even taught us how to steal. She taught us, you know, because we didn't have the money to go shopping for school clothes. So she would actually teach us how to steal. Um, my brother got really good at it. I got pretty good at it. Um, I wasn't as good as him and definitely not as good as my mom. Um, but those were the types of lessons my mom taught me. She didn't sit me down and, you know, teach me about what it meant to be a lady or, um, about financial education or the importance of school, uh, social development. My mom taught me how to be a thief. My mom taught me how to pack dope in little tiny balloons and hide them in M&M packages. Um, Well, before the M&M packages, I had to hide them in my vagina because I was a teenager and young, uh, uh, even in junior high, going to the jails with my mom. So they wouldn't check me. So I had to hide the dope inside of me. Then we'd get there and we'd pour it into an M&M container and her boyfriend or my father, whoever we went to go visit at at that time, would swallow the dope and send us money later on. So um, she taught me how basically to traffic. And she hated me because my father thought I was beautiful. Um, My father would say, do what you want with her. Just don't hit her in her face. Her face and her ass will be her moneymaker. And to spite my father, my mother would hit me in my face on purpose. That's a small uh, bit of my background. When my mom beat me that last time that I told you about, um, not too long after that, I seen that what was happening was now starting to affect my little sister. And so I reported my mom. You did? I did. You reported your mother? Yes. Who did you go to? I called DCFS. Oh, wow. I mean, I had already been taken out before um, because people from the schools were calling. And I went to go live with my aunt. I wish I would have been able to stay there, but they did place me back with my mom. Um, And my mom just made it sound like I was an incorrigible youth. And by the looks of me, honestly, I I looked that way, especially in high school. I, because I had been sexually abused, um, I wanted to cover up. I didn't feel pretty. Um, I didn't want to wear scantily clad clothing or be the girl who, you know, wore the makeup and showed her cleavage and whatever else was going on in the nineties, you know, the, those dressing styles, I wore baggy pants with boxer shorts underneath it. And I would wear a bra and a sports bra and then a tank top. And then I would wear a t-shirt over it. Right. So you were covering up as much as you could. Very much so. Very much so. Um, but when I seen that what was going on at the house was now starting to affect my sister on a level more than just neglect, 
I seen that the abuse was starting to happen to her. I did. I called on my mom. And when they went over to check, uh, my mom was high. There were car parts in the house. I mean, most of the things that you would see with a drug addict, especially a meth addict. And so they did remove us both from the house. Um, initially, we went to go stay with my best friend's parents, but because they weren't licensed and was only an emergency placement, uh, we had to be removed and they separated us. So my sister went to um, my grandmother's initially and I stayed with the best friend for about another week. And then they found us a placement where we were put together. And that started our odyssey through the foster care system um, of nine different homes. Uh, at that point, for me, it was in three, three and a half years. Right. So nine different homes in approximately three and a half years. Yes. Right. And were you moved together with your sister or did you, were you separated again and put together again and separated again? It went back and forth. Back and forth. So there was yeah. no consistency whatsoever. No. No. Right. So um, can you tell me about Lori Nelson? You called her one of the good social workers. Yes. Um, Lori Nelson saved my life. And uh, there will probably... Gosh, that's, that's really nice to hear because there's people out there that are, are saving lives, you know? You know, um, I will probably get teary-eyed and cry. I had multiple social workers and it was like, nobody listened. And this woman came along and she seen me as more than a case file. And she listened. She made me feel like somebody cared. And, um, she was the first social worker I really respected. We had been bouncing from home to home to home and there was sexual abuse in the home. There was neglect in the different foster homes. There was a lot that was going on and she listened. And I, um, honestly, I had a friend who was not a relative, but not a relative by blood, but was family. I was in another foster home that was actually biological family before this particular time. And the woman, my cousin, family, blood related, would not even take me to school. I would wake up and her husband would be sitting at the edge of my bed. He would say things to her in front of me about my anatomy. It was always a oops when he walked into the bathroom on accident. And this particular other person knew all these things were happening. And she would get up and had children of her own. She would get up and drive across town to pick me up so I could go to school. And I told Lori about this person and I was like, I keep going into all these different foster homes with all these different social workers and things are getting worse. I remember one time I woke up and I think I had so much anxiety. My lips were swollen and past half of my face and I had broken out in um, like hives. Um, I just, I wasn't handling it well and I was angry and fighting and all the things. And then there was Lori and I mean, I was what, 16 and I'm in my 40s now, and Lori is my, Lori's one of my moms. She's not my biological mom, but she, here's the difference. Lori, even though we had times where we were separated and lost touch, um, Lori was a social worker who became a parent. There's a difference between being um, a mom, having a child, and being a parent, being a mother. Lori's taught me how to be a mother. I still call her to this day um, because, I mean, this is kind of jumping ahead even, but what I realized in raising my own son and my, my stepdaughter is that 
I don't know how to parent. Right. You didn't learn as a kid, so you've had to learn it as an adult. Yeah. Um, I'm a big Google parent. <laughs> My son, when he was younger, he even used to ask me questions and I'd say, oh, you know what, honey? He goes, you got to Google it, mom. And I was like, yes. So I'd read various articles and really try and figure out um, what felt right for me being a parent, you know, outside of the love and all of that other stuff. Um, it's the biggest adventure that I've ever, ever, ever been on. Um, but when I am at a loss, I can pick up the phone all these years later, 25 plus years later, and I can call Mama Lori. Right. You know, well, she describes you as just exceptional from the moment she met you, that you were really, really smart, really, really driven, and you were just, you were just do, do, do. And you told me that being able to see yourself through her eyes made you, made you different, made you better made you even more exceptional. Is that what happened? It helped me to believe in myself a little bit. Um, she was right. I would do, do, do. Once, once I reached a place in my life where I knew I didn't want to be like my parents, um, my whole outlook changed. I, the way I dressed changed. Um, my school behavior changed. I actually signed up for zero period, would go to school till 12 um, noon. Then I would go to independent study because I had so many high school credits I had to make up. Then I would drive out to the local community college and I would take classes there and I worked. And I did it because that cliche, sink or swim, right? Fight or, fight or, or die. That was, that was my life. It was like, either I do this or me and my little sister don't eat. Either I do this or I'm going to be like my mother and my biggest fear in life. And they actually asked me this um, <laughs> in one of my Miss America interviews. Um, but my biggest fear in life at that point, and I was articulated just like this, was to be like my parents because I felt like they failed me. And I never wanted to do that to myself or if I decided to have children to my children. Lori's belief in me helped me to see that what I was doing was not just the everyday hustle of survival. It helped me to see what honestly, I think I kind of knew was deep, deep, deep down in there, but I didn't believe in myself enough to know. But it helped me to see that little spark that said, you are so much more than your surroundings. You are so much more than what you've been put through. And what you've been given is a gift. I didn't fully believe it, but I started doing some self-talk. Um, and that little belief, that little fire, I think uh, led to the much bigger things that I ended up doing. Right. So the article that I read about you almost 20 years ago was uh, you were Miss L.A. County. Yes. And then that went on to a whole bunch of other things. Can you Talk to me a little bit about that. Yes. Um, I was at Antelope Valley College, still very much a tomboy, and I was taking a theater arts class, and there were two what you would consider to be the typical, stereotypical beauty pageant girls, you know, blonde, beautiful, perfect skin, the body of a Baywatch actress. I mean, you know, all of those things. And I, I even distinctly remember them introducing themselves as Miss Lancaster. And... <laughs> 
Ooh. Right. <laughs> and uh, my mentality back then, and I'm going to be very frank with you. I Sure. I literally said to myself, if this bitch doesn't sit down and shut up, I'm going to throw something at her. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not where my head was. That's not what I'd grown up around. That's not, even though I wanted to be a model when I was young, um, to see this, it was foreign to me. But as I got to know them, you know, you have to do icebreakers and fun exercises and theater arts classes and all that stuff. They told me about their pageant experiences and how they were going to do this pageant for the second year in a row that no matter whether you won or lost, you got a thousand dollar scholarship. And that was huge, huge. And I was like, well, I used to want a model and I really need the money and I'm not going to win it anyway. But as long as I get a thousand dollars, why not try? So, um, they told me you have to have a platform and I was like, I'm already working with foster youth. Um, so let's do foster youth. So I, I chose the platform of the successful transition of foster youth, bringing one of the first people to bring, uh, the true plight of foster youth, um, not just babies, but actually the adolescents that were emancipating from the system. It was, I was one of the first people who ever brought it to Miss America. They thought foster kids, they get adopted and that's great. Yeah. That's what a lot of people think. They think it, oh, they just get removed from the home and then their future is set and happy. Yes. And they don't know that we are actually disposable. Yeah. Yeah. We are human beings that literally get tossed around with our clothes and trash bags. Right. Um, At least that's the way it was at that time. So the girls, I got to know them. They told me about that. And before I decided to enter, she goes, oh, and there's a swimsuit competition. And I actually quit. I quit. I was not at all comfortable in my body. And you want me to put on a swimsuit and parade around in front of people? No. I'll talk about foster youth and I will advocate for the underdog all day, every day. And I'll do it with passion and conviction and all those things. But you want me to put on a swimsuit? Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, but it was $1,000. And so $1,000, $1,000 oh, for the bikini. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, I was living in transitional housing. I didn't even have the money to buy a swimsuit. So everything got borrowed. There was actually a kind of mom and pop dress shop that was down the way from me. And I went in and... Um, she sponsored me with a dress. Now, mind you, it was kind of like an old school marm dress and we had to do all kinds of things to it, but it was free. It was amazing. I was blessed to have a sponsorship. Um, I didn't have heels. I didn't know how to walk in heels. So in my swimsuit, which was actually board shorts and a tank, bikini tank top to go with it, I wore. <laughs> that's, that's nice. That's good. <laughs> and they're wearing, you know, sexy swimsuits and um, they had the confidence to wear them. And I paired mine with a pair of matching tennis shoes. Like it was just, it was very, um, everyone was singing and dancing and they were, you know, playing the the flute or, you know, their cellists and all these classically trained. um, Right. And what did you do? I did karate. Oh, cool. (laughs) That's what I knew. Wow. That's what I knew. Um, And I won. I won and I won with the highest interview score that they had ever had at that competition. And I was on my way to my very first Miss America state finalist and my life began to change. Once I won that title, uh, I was living in transitional housing at that time and my transitional 18 months was about to be up. Can you explain to people what that means? Because oh, people do not know what that is. They, they don't even know it exists. Okay. So us foster youth... At the age of 18, we generally do what's called aging out. And that is when the system relinquishes all parental responsibilities for you, although 
they've been your parents for however long you've been in the system. That's not even a, a normal concept in anywhere in the world where people, your parents just release you like that, but the system does. Um, and at that point, there wasn't a lot of good aftercare. So when they released me, I got a black duffel bag instead of a trash bag, but a black duffel bag with an alarm clock, a um, cooking pot, like one little cooking pot, a white washcloth, a $50 Marshall's gift certificate, and a sewing kit. And those were my parting gifts to go out into a world that was ready to eat me up. That is the way that my parents released me into the system, my foster care parent system, or my parents. Um, so I, I, I got into their transitional housing, though. That in itself was a blessing because I would have had nowhere to go. Um, my father was still in and out of jail, and my mother uh, was still an addict in and out of her addiction. And to be honest, um, my mother was fairly toxic. It was not a situation that would have been good for me to go back to anyway, although I was trying to build the relationship. Um, but I had stayed in that one transitional housing for 18 months, um, went to school, finished my associate's degree. Um, I, I went into the military, forgot that part. When I was leaving the foster care system, um, I wanted to eventually get custody of my sisters. I didn't, I didn't trust other people raising them because I knew what had happened to me in the system. And so I wanted to try and get them. And the only way that I knew I could do that as a 17, 18 year old kid was to find stability for myself so that I could then hopefully give it to them. Um, so I, I enlisted in the military. Uh, I was gone for 10 months. When I came back, I got into the transitional housing that we were just speaking of, um, was there for uh, 18 months. At the end of that, I had heard a, of another transitional housing program that was in the LA area in Santa Monica, and it was um, a homeless shelter that was specifically for foster youth. And they gifted you with a scholarship for up to two and a half years, but they only had six slots and they had one that had just opened up. So um, I went. I bet you got it. I did. You got it, didn't I you? I did. Yeah. I did. Um, <laughs> went through the interviews. I was so nervous. Um, and I got this, for me, a coveted spot. And honestly, this is another pivotal moment that started to change my life. The housing director is still in my life. She's another mom. Um, I mean, to the point to where... You know, she's she's my son's grandma. She sends us, you know, stuff on Christmas. We go and we have dinners with her. Um, she was another blessing who really helped me also throughout the course of my life. But um, I was in that transitional housing also for two and a half years. So I actually went through two transitional housing programs, um, which allowed me to save up money, allowed me to... The second one um, was a, a monitored transitional housing program. So what that means is that they had staff that lived on, um, on premises at all times. And that particular person, her name was Allison. And that's the one I was just talking about that I'm also very close with. Um, and so were you able to get, um, your sisters with you or no? No, no, I was not. Uh, my, my younger sister actually went back to my mom. Um, she was able to pass enough drug tests, I guess, and get clean. Um, <laughs> I even, I still think about that and, I'm, I can't articulate this gently. The system messed up on that one. And I think ultimately my sister's going back to my mom are one of the reasons why they're in the situations they aren't in now. And basically following my parents' footsteps almost to the T, if not worse. So your sisters are in trouble. Very much so. Very, very much so. Both of them are drug addicts. Um, one of them has five kids that she lost, all five of them, and she's in prison. She's also a prostitute. 
Um, and then my other sister married a abusive man who got her hooked on drugs. They have five kids and he died of a drug overdose earlier this year during COVID. And I think, honestly, I think it's partly the foster care system's fault. My, they had no business going back to my mother at all. I work for the system now. Right. Yeah. Tell me about what you're doing now, because this is a really interesting part of your story too. I eventually applied for the probation department after teaching at the different probation camps. And I, at that time thought corporate America wasn't for me. I wanted something more stable and I wanted something that I could give back. And I just knew that the kids who were like me needed to hear somebody say that not only are you not broken, but you're capable. And I know you're capable because even if our stories are different, if I can come out of the shit I came out of, you absolutely can do it too. And I wanted to be that person to tell them that they could, because I believed in it. I believe in it. Um, so I became a probation officer and initially it was, um, just in the institutions. And then eventually I, I was able to promote into, um, I was actually put into, uh, the coveted position of being an independent living coordinator. And, um, that actually came to me because of the LA times article, uh, the chief probation officer seen it and was like, wait, this is one of our employees. And at that time we had three kids who escaped by gunpoint. So it was a way to pivot the news outlets to something more positive. And that's actually one of the ways that the LA Times article came about, along with the board members of the transitional housing program that I was in. So that's pretty much how I came across being a probation officer and working for the independent living program. And in addition to all of that, you are also in what I'll say in the expressive artists. So can you talk to me about, I didn't realize that you also had theater training. So that makes sense now that I've seen some of your videos. So talk to me about that because you got injured, right? And then there was a change for you. Yes. Uh, while I was at work in the institutions, in the juvenile institutions, there was a small riot that broke out and it's our job to um, pacify situations like that. And um, unfortunately, when I was trying to separate two of the boys who were in full on brawls, um, I got hurt. And uh, I basically lived on my couch for almost a year Um, martial arts was gone. Miss America was basically out the window. Also at that particular point, I wasn't competing fully at that point. Um, my weight was fluctuating. I felt ugly. I felt just, it was a lot. And, um, (sighs) and you were hurt on your couch and something saved you. Yeah. I lived on my couch and, um, Terry Hatcher, I did a play with her and uh, she told me about oh, wait, this wait, new wait, movement. Wait. Okay, wait a minute. We've got to go back to that too. Okay. So okay. first tell me that because I didn't, I don't want to skip over that. Okay. Let me say this then. As a Miss America title holder, or excuse me, at this point I had already finished competing at Miss America and I went and I was recruited to compete with Miss Black United States. I won Miss Black California um, and then was going on to compete with Miss Black United States, but the founder and director of Miss Black United States um, also owned a nonprofit organization that she dubbed the Hershey Organization. And um, she basically said that she started that organization because of me and wanted other foster girls to have opportunities that were not afforded to them um, once they emancipated. 
So in that, she did a lot of fundraisers. And one of the things that happened is her and Eve Ensler joined forces and V-Day, which is Vagina Monologues Day, um, which is normally done uh, for domestic violence. Um, Eve Ensler said, no, this time we're going to do it and all the money is going to go to foster care. So Kennedy Cobbin told her about me and about my monologue and um, Eve Ensler loved it. And she said her monologue needs to be in the vagina monologues. It needs to be in this play. So, um, Dawn Lewis, uh, amazing, brilliant actress. Um, she was one of the ones who did my monologue. I did my monologue. I mean, and to be, even though I competed at Miss America, still to be on a stage with these, these beautiful, huge names in Hollywood. I just, it was, I was over the moon. Um, but one of the women who were there were, was Terry Hatcher. And she started talking about this new exercise movement. And, you know, when things get big in Hollywood, people get really excited about it. And um, so she starts talking about it. And I'm, I'm actually kind of ear hustling more than being fully engaged in the conversation. And she said, it's changed my life. It's changed my <laughs> body. It's changed my marriage. I was like, how to change your marriage? And then she said, it's pole dancing. <laughs> and um, I was intrigued. But to try and compact the story, I was like, I can't do that. I wasn't comfortable in my sensuality. I wasn't comfortable in my sexuality. I mean, I was barely started getting comfortable wearing a swimsuit in front of hundreds of people, you know, prancing around that way, but let alone to swing around a pole. I was a martial artist. I kicked butt, didn't show mine. Um, And I just had all these negative biases about it. (laughs) So I actually waited a year, almost a year. And I said, you know what, just go for it. Because I, I got to this point where I had put on weight because of my injury and I felt ugly. Um, and all these other feelings that were going on, uh, you know, not having family. I mean, it was a lot that was going on at that time. So I was like, let's try it. So I went to this class, I looked it up, but I couldn't find the pole dancing one initially. What I found was a company called the art of exotic dancing for everyday women. It was not pole dancing, but it was sensual movement that they used to help build sense of self, self esteem and help women to find their sense of sensuality. So I went to this class and there was probably like 30, 35 women in it. And I stood in the back. I didn't want to be in front of the mirror. Right. You were hiding. I was hiding and I was next to a bunch of women in the back and we were all like pulling our shirts down and nervous. And there was the one girl in the front. Um, and she did say that she was a stripper and her movement was magnetic. Hmm. Her, the way that she owned her walk. I didn't even know that that could happen, let alone was it ever going to happen for me. But anyway, I took the class. It was three hours long. And by the end of the class, I was up in the mirror also. And I was literally a different woman. So I went up to the instructor and I said, this is changed. I mean, I cried at the end, even dancing. Um, And it was nothing that I thought it was. It wasn't raunchy and overtly sexual. It was a sensuality that honestly was love and bliss and passion and giving my body permission to move. And she said yes for the first time. And I gave that permission. No one's ever given me permission before. It was always taken. So the fact that I could give myself that permission and not associate it with all the trauma was life-changing for me. But I talked to the instructor and I was like, when's the next class? I have to take it again. Now, mind you too, this was 20 plus, or no, excuse me, 14, 15 years ago. And the class was a hundred dollars 
for a college student. A lot of money. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But I was like, I don't care. I'll do whatever I have to do. Um, and, uh, she said, actually, I watched you dance and I'd like you to teach. I was like, huh? (laughs) What? What? Um, so I guess, um, there was something in me and I, I flew to, I did an interview on the phone with the, the CEO of the company and flew to the company out in Philadelphia and trained with them for two weeks and became certified to be an art of exotic dancing for everyday women teacher. And I taught moms and corporate CEOs and I taught um, BBW models and I taught rape victims and breast cancer survivors and you name it, I taught every single woman and it gave me a sense of self and purpose that I never thought I'd really have. I mean, I loved working with my foster kids, um, still do always will, and will always be an advocate. But what I was able to get from giving to these women through this sensual movement was amazing. I mean, uh, let me ask you about that. So because of your, because of your background of sexual trauma, of you being able to discover a way to express yourself sensually, perhaps even sexually, Obviously, that's related, right? And so does that mean that part of you was, there was part of you closed off for many, many years, and then you were able to have it open later in a different way? Um, I, you know, I don't talk about this much, but I will, because people need to know this. Um, the first time that I had sex, I had sex to spite my mother. I literally went, mind you, it happened in the kitchen on the floor because that's where our bed was. And literally the next morning I went in and in a very snooty way, told her what I did. And she started crying and I walked away happy because I finally knew that I caused her some type of thought that hurt. Right. You were trying to wound her and you're trying to hurt her. Right. Yeah. Um, but I was still very protective of my sexuality. I was, I mean, I was young anyway. I didn't want to get pregnant. I knew all the things that went along with it, but I wanted to hurt her. And let's, let's be honest when young girls, especially are in a place of, um, low self-esteem, trauma, things are, all you want to do is feel loved. Mm. So here's this boy who thought I was beautiful, even wearing boy clothes. And, um, so I had given him my virginity and, uh, when I emancipated or when I was emancipated, when I got emancipated, um, there was a time where I was homeless. And the truth of the matter is, is that there were times where basically I had to do what I had to do. I'm not proud of it, but I also understand why women sometimes do what they have to do. I didn't see an alternative. As a matter of fact, I thought that I was going to be a stripper. Um, even before I started pole dancing, when I was in the system, I was like, I, I knew either if I got pregnant, then I could get on, um, I could get on AFDC and I could live in low income housing. And I was like, that could work. Or I could become a stripper, make more money. And then maybe eventually I could go to college. And my last foster mom even said, if that's really what you want to do, I would rather support you than not. And so, um, took me to a strip club, but because I was 18, um, it was completely nude and there was no way I could do that. No way. So my shift, my mind shift changed real quick. I was like, well, I can't strip my way through college. So I'm gonna have to figure something else out. And that was a part of the military also. 
Right. And uh, what did you do in the military again? I, I was a combat photographer. <laughs> so I was full metal jacket. Venus, you you are blowing my mind. And I know people <laughs> listening to this are just like, wow. I mean, you're just an astounding person. Hmm. I mean, the way that you've, you know, that you bounced and, and then up and then bounced and up and bounced and up. So I saw your video of, um, of it's a dance, I think basically for breast cancer awareness. Will you, will you tell me about that? Um, yes, pole dancing has various genres that you can, um, you can utilize as artistic expression. Um, most people think that it's just, you know, stilettos and, um, (laughs) booby tassels and thong, G-string thongs, um, lap dances and CD clubs. And it's not at all. Yeah. Until I, until I heard the term from you, I had never heard the term vertical theater, Yes, which is referring to pole dancing and all the different genres that, that it allows for in terms of expression, right? Correct. Um, so yes, pole dancing can be contemporary. It can be exotic. It can be full on sports. So full on gymnastics on the pole. Um, kids are doing it now. Men do it. Uh, they have doubles competitions. They have international competitions. They have all of these things that go along with pole dancing. It really is an artistic sport. And, um, there was a time when I was in my twenties that I had found a lump in my breast and breast cancer runs in my biological family. And it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And then, um, a friend of mine, her husband had a lump in his breast, which was breast cancer, uh, male breast cancer. And unfortunately, um, it metastasized and it took his life. And then the one that you had seen a very good friend of mine who was my student, uh, pole dancing student got breast cancer, Michelle masters. And when I tell you the beauty of this woman's soul, I was just like, this, this has to be done because she had, she fought it her all on her own, but then she got to stage four and all of a sudden nobody wanted to help her. Susan G. Komen, all of these different things. They said, you're stage four. We really have no help for you. So basically what they were saying to her is you're stage four. You're going to die anyway. So you no longer matter. And that was not acceptable to me. So I danced for her. I danced for Walter and I danced so that women know you got to check your boobs. You got to check your boobs. And even more so, don't ever look away regardless of where that person is because when they're here, they're still here. Michelle, I just love her. So anyway, I put this piece together and um, took it to competition. It was a national competition called Pole Theater USA where you have to have a concept. You um, compete and I won. I won and we raised a lot of money for Michelle and we raised, um, I mean, for breast cancer in general, but it all went to Michelle and all of my workshop money, all of everything that I got for those next couple of months and through the whole, um, breast cancer awareness month all went to Michelle and it helped her to do things like get healthy food, which she couldn't afford anymore because she wasn't working and she was stage four. So she was a write-off. So it was for little things like that. Um, And there's a growth process in it, but to be able to be, um, 
at this stage in my life and to still do something that I love and still be able to advocate and give back um, and make people aware of, I don't want to necessarily say the underdog, but don't let, make people aware as well as force them or let them know, like, you won't forget because I won't let you. Because this woman right here is nothing short of amazing. Um, It's one of my proudest pieces. Yeah, it's beautiful. When you had first said that you did pole dancing, I'm like a lot of people, like what you said before, I thought, oh, it's probably really sexy and fun and she's got some high heels and she's super athletic. And But actually what I've seen you do on the videos and now I've watched a few others um, is something very different, something that's very, um, very, very expressive. Um, it has a lot of messages that um, has all different kinds of levels of expression and um, also artistry. It's really cool, really cool. So you're an advocate on so many levels for so many people, it turns out, as well as yourself. And um, how how have you been doing that? Um, I used to not be able to answer this question at all. And now... I can take my experiences and I can say one, it's God or whoever you believe your, your higher power happens to be. Mine is God. Um, mine is knowing that there's a purpose, even if I don't know what that purpose is. And I'm also a true believer that sometimes we are just born with an innate tenacity, tenacity to not sink. Um, I did a paper in college and you can actually see this very well with me and my two sisters. Um, and I see it all the time with my kids in the, in the foster care system. There are those kids who, what I call low risk. I was a low risk kid. Um, even though I was immersed in a high, in a high risk situation, I was low risk because I had tenacity to, even though I messed up and I fell down, I knew I had to get back up. So I got back up and you go. And even when you fall, you get back up again. And every time I fell, I was like, I have to get up. And it wasn't even so much a thought. It was just like, that's what you do because I won't be like my mother. And then there's the medium risk who initially was my middle sister. And that's the the kid who, again, is immersed in maybe a traumatic situation, gets into some trouble, but needs intervention to really help get them back on track. And that's what she needed. She needed the push. And for a little while, she started to do really well. Um, she did, um, she, I'm not going to say unfortunately because I love my niece, but she got pregnant at 17, which started to change things again, but um, still went to school, was trying to be a CNA, so forth and so on. And then my youngest sister is the high-risk one who no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what resources and interventions you give, she's going to go the other way. Um, and it's also helped me even as a practitioner now, uh, working with these kids to know where to focus and how to focus my energy. And for the longest time, I was that probation officer that said, every single kid can make it. I know that's not a reality now. It's hard for me to say, and I don't like to say it, but being on both sides, I do see it. And so I know that there are certain kids that I have to give more attention to. And there are certain kids that I know I have to let them know. I'm here, but I see that you're not ready. 
but when you are, I'll still be here. And then I have to put my focus where it's, it's going to be utilized. Have you found that the work that you do is sometimes too difficult for you because of your own background? Or do you think it, your background only informs it and makes you better at what you do? Um, only working with um, sexual predators. I've literally had to walk away. Uh, I've literally had to ask someone to take the case. And now I just don't read them. Um, actually one of my facilities, uh, the main population are, um, fire starters and, um, sexual abusers. And, um, when I first started going there, I would read some of the cases. And I remember one day very nonchalantly. And when I say these, these cases are everything from two-year-olds being sodomized to, um, two group home boys tying up and raping another boy. And I read one case and I put the kid in his room like he was supposed to be anyway. And I couldn't deal with him. I, I didn't let him out. And it was wrong of me. I didn't let him out for rec. I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't look at him knowing that he did what he did to somebody else, even though I knew deep down inside for him to do that, it happened to him. But in my mind, I was like, you're 17 and you know better. And I knew better at 17. So it was very, I knew right then that my own personal traumas and biases um, were blocking me from being able to do the job that I was supposed to do. So then I knew that I had to set up a new, um, a new work process so that it would allow me to do my job and not to feel the realities that came along with it. Um, I love to feel when the kids do good, but I, I now know that I cannot with those who are there for, um, being sexual predators. I I don't have the strength to be Yeah. To discipline myself with that. So I just don't read it. Right. Well, it sounds like you also needed to protect yourself and that as an adult now, you know, that you can do that. Yes. Boundaries. (laughs) Finding boundaries as an adult has been a beautiful thing. Because for so long, you, you don't know about boundaries because you were never allowed to have them. And every time you tried to set one up, people broke through. Right. And nobody protected you and rebuilt those boundaries for you. So can you tell me, you right now, and I, I don't see it, but you told me that you suffer from a skin condition. Talk to me about that. And... I, I do. Um, yes, I suffer from, um, actually, I don't even know if I want to say suffer anymore. Yeah. Okay. I have a condition. Okay. I'm going to take it back. And it's okay. Uh, tell me about your skin condition. Yes. Um, I have vitiligo and it's okay because a lot of people say suffer, um, because of the fact it, I mean, I suffered initially. It's, it's, it's scary. Um, it's one thing to age because you see your natural self progressing and aging, minutely, right? But when you happen to look down and you're literally missing patches of pigmentation and people will stare at you or, you know, were you burned or what? I've even had people say, what happened to you? Is that contagious? Like they have absolutely no idea. And so I understand why people will say what you had said. Um, I've come to the point, even though I would rather not have it, 
Um, and I still pray that it doesn't fully go over my face. I wear makeup to cover up most of it that's on my face. Um, but I've also like the ones on my arms, actually, I didn't get any treatment for. I stopped getting treatment because I'm like, they're kind of pretty. Somebody actually pointed them out to me. And was like, you know. Oh, you're right. Because it's like a beautiful like collage, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. My son, um, we were in Thailand and I got my first tattoo. I said I was never going to tattoo, but I, this, these tattoos just made, was a big meaning to me. And they were, they're Asian um, phrases that talk about strength and family and all those things. Beautiful. And I was on the back of the boat and I was like, oh, I can't believe I got a tattoo. And he was like, mommy, you already had tattoos. And I was like, no, I didn't silly. These are the first ones. He was like, your spots, God gave them to you. Oh. And I <laughs> cried. My baby said that I was already decorated. He's seen beauty in my spots. And if he can see them, um, and then my husband's amazing. I started spreading. This was before we were married. And I said, I can't guarantee you that I'm going to look like myself in two years, let alone 10. Um, and so I'm giving you an out. I don't want you to ever have to feel stuck and look at me and, you know, and he grabbed me and he says, all I see is you and you are beautiful. And, um, what's your husband's name? His name is Mel. Mel. Yes. He sounds like a great guy. He is. He's, he's my blessing. We're each other's blessing. I'll say very much so. Very much so. I, I sometimes think, and I have conversations with God and I'm like, so I went through all that so that I could experience this. And I, I don't, I wonder if I hadn't gone through that, would I even appreciate what I do get to experience now, you know, since I've met my husband and we've been married, we've been together, um, 10 years, um, for the first time in my life. And I actually said this in my vows, I felt safe for the first time in my life. I was safe. I felt safe and I felt loved. And I remember when I was competing at Miss America, girls would be like, Oh, I'm so happy. I won and blah, blah, you know? And I remember thinking to myself, even when I won, I was like, this is cool, but I don't feel happy. It was just like, this is what you do to get another scholarship. And in my adult life, I know I did the work, but definitely being with um, the man that he is has helped me to get to a place. Again, I know I did all the work, but it's helped me get to a place where I can say, one, I'm happy. And two, I can actually look at myself now. Didn't do it when I was in the pageants or any of that stuff, but I could look at myself and I can say, you are beautiful. And it's not just about aesthetics, but I see the whole picture of me now. Um, I mean, we're humans. We're always going to change. We're always going to grow. We're always going to evolve. Um, but I feel like life started when we met almost. Yeah, he's pretty awesome. What is the the one thing that people would never know about you unless you told them? <laughs> this is kind of funny. It was actually one of my Miss America fun facts. And maybe you're not looking for it to go this direction, but it's still kind of funny. I got 26 stitches in my face and no one can ever guess where. I could ha- I have no idea where. It, it's impossible to tell. <laughs> um, my lip was actually ripped all the way open and torn half off my face. So I had to sew it back onto the underbridge and then sew it back together. They did a beautiful job. Yeah. The surgeon was amazing. It was amazing. No one, you, you can only tell like if I fully lift up my lip and then you see all the scars under there, but 
no, he, he did good. How did that injury happen? Um, I was, I was really young. We were playing on the playground and this boy tripped me on purpose (laughs) and I I was going to jump over bench and he tripped me. And when I fell, my face hit the bench and I got up and my just all done, all done, busted right open. So that was actually, um, because it was one of my fun facts at Miss America, they asked me about it and they said, well, then if that happened, then, um, how well do you feel when the boys are kissing you? Now, honestly, in the back of my head, I remember thinking that is so inappropriate for Miss America interview, but I had a panel of 10 judges and I had to answer the question. So I said, with all the poise and sass that I could at the same time, I said, oh, but with all this lip lacquer on, I can't feel anything anyway. And I won the interview. <laughs> uh, this has just been, this has been amazing. Um, you know, I knew you were, you were, I knew you were fascinating, uh, but I, I didn't, I didn't know all this. And I really appreciate you sharing so much. Absolutely. And I, I you know, I'm sorry, I cut you off. Um, no, I was just going to ask if there's anything else you want to say. You know, this is a forum that uh, hopefully will reach a lot of people. I want to say first and foremost, thank you. Thank you that not only did you, you see me 20 years ago, but you held my plight close to your heart. So here we are 20 years later and you are still doing the work. Um, I see that. I recognize it. I commend it. I'm grateful for it. So even though this was my interview as a child of the system, I want to say thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Thanks. Because um, I'm not always sure if if my work is making a difference. And I just hope that it does. So You know, being on both sides, what I want to say to you is that um, there was a point in my life where I wanted to make a systemic change. And um, then there was another point where I was like, mm, that's probably not in my cards to make that change at that level. But... I know the changes that I can make. And even if you don't make systemic changes, making individual changes is so much bigger, I think, sometimes than making a systemic change because the systemic changes waver with whoever is at the top of management. But Lori, Allison, those people who changed my life and in turn, I have literally touched hundreds, if not thousands of foster youth because they believed in me which gave me the ability to believe in myself and then in turn believe in others to continue. And that's what you're doing. Um, And I hope that one day the things that we do and say will touch the person who can make those systemic changes. And um, we put that down also. Uh, The other thing that I want to say, because as you said, I do, I advocate. Um, Being a pole dancer, I have come across people from all walks of life. Um, He's, she's, they's, um, transgender, bisexual, um, you name it. And you know what? They're fascinating. They're fascinating. They're amazing. They're beautiful. Yes, they might. And you know what? Some of them are sex workers and that's what they chose to do. But I'm saying right here, right now, that makes them no less than you or I. And it really pisses me off that there are individuals who can look at another person and treat them the way that they treat them based on that person's own personal preference. So 
I wish that people would open their minds more often to that, as well as to all the women out there. I highly suggest, regardless of what age you are, size, shape, ethnicity, whatever, when the world opens back up, (laughs) take a pole class. Take a pole class, a sensual movement class, um, anything like that. And, it, and remember, it's not just about sensuality, but it's also about mobility and um, community. Some of my best friends now. Right. Strength and flexibility. and mm-hmm. right. No, some of my best friends now um, are the people that I actually have maintained very close contacts and have grown with are women that I met in the pole community that I would have never met anywhere else. Um, Because I'm in criminal justice, how often would it be that I would come across um, a woman who maybe is a physicist, but she was my student. And now I've been immersed even in her world. So I'm constantly learning and evolving because I've been open-minded, put myself in the, I mean, it's just, it just goes and goes and goes. So foster care and pole dancing. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, well, thank you, Venus. Thank you so much. Um, I wish you all the best. And I, I can't wait till COVID is over so that we can meet in person. And I would love that. I'll buy you a glass of champagne. Okay. I'll take that. And then when I finish writing that book, you'll get one of the first copies. Oh, I'm on. I'm on. I'm on. I help you. I, I told you that. It's going to be great. You'll be on the red carpet with me. Like you will have to. Yes, it'll be amazing. Thank you so much. If you see something, say something. If you suspect that a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. And right now in COVID, Reports of abuse and neglect are down by 50%. And that's not because it's not happening. It's because kids are not in school. And their teachers and other adults, mandated reporters, aren't seeing them. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you're a kid in care and you want to know more about your sexual and reproductive health, you can go to fosterreprohealth.org. That's fosterreprohealth.org prohealth.org. And if you're an older kid in trouble, check out pennylane.org. They offer a safe place for homeless and LGBTQ youth who need some help. And if you're a kid in care who wants a casa, you can ask for one. In Los Angeles, go to casala.org. And anywhere else in the nation, go to nationalcasagal.org. And you can get one. I want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful music, Eferisto. To hear more of her music, go to Spotify and Instagram at Christina Apostol. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-A-P-O-S-T-O. I know you want to. Her stuff is really great. And thanks to my audio producer extraordinaire, Marcos Campito. I'm glad I found you. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear, please rate us and hit subscribe.